0: Welcome to Mormon Book Reviews, or An Evangelical Encounters the Restoration. I'm your host, Stephen Peinecker, and this is a special segment of Tuesday Tangents. And just so you know, folks, I have permission from Rick Bennett to use the term Tuesday Tangents, because typically these are like 20 to 25-minute segments, just about the size of a Gospel Tangents episode. And I was trying to like, Tuesday Talks, Tuesday, I couldn't think of another Tuesday Tangents. So thanks, Rick Bennett, for letting me uh, crib your notes there. A um, couple of things, merch store is open, and um, Doing really good. Uh, actually, you just bought a, a hoodie, uh, from my understanding. So,
1: yeah, man, it's on
0: its way too. So, more merch store. If you want to support us on PayPal, uh, Patreon, please. Uh, I do appreciate all those who are contributing. Uh, we're still a small channel. Uh, it's not like I'm getting rich, I'm far from it. It's basically helping cover some of the expenses. But the more contributors I have, I can get better equipment, upgrade. There's like a $1,500 Sony camera that we're looking at. But we got to get some more money in the bank before we can do that. Plus, I got to fund a trip to Sunstone next month. So, very exciting. Also, just real quick, um, tomorrow, um, I'm going to be, I've rebranded my personal channel. Um, it's going to be just called Stephen Pinecker. Uh, this is going to be a second YouTube channel I'm going to do, which is going to do maybe some behind the scenes stuff for Mormon book reviews. So, I'm going to provide a link in the description. Tomorrow will be the formal launch of the rebrand of my channel. And I also use that as a place where I can maybe talk about things that are unrelated to the restoration, uh, but maybe I think things that are of interest to me and they might be of interest to you. So Nathan Smith, I just want to thank you so much for coming back onto the program and doing me a real solid because I had somebody lined up and they lost their wallet yesterday. So they're going to spend the day at the DMV to get a new wallet. And so I was like, okay, well, I got to get something up. And you told me the other day, dude, if you need me for the last minute, I'm there. And I'm like, Awesome, dude. So Nathan, thank you so much for coming to the program. It's always a pleasure, man. Thank you so much for inviting me. And uh, so what this is like what we did with before. Okay. So I remember I did that series with Nathan where we, he would tell me a book. uh, I didn't know what was coming on and we would just discuss it. It's somewhat similar. Uh, This one where he, we got the name already. So I have a general idea and I think we're tentatively calling it psychoanalyzing Alma, the younger. So Nathan, tell me, uh, what made you decide to, first of all, this is based on a paper you wrote, correct?
1: Yeah, so back in, I think, 2018, uh, Dialogue, a journal of Mormon thought, held their uh, annual Eugene England essay contest, and uh, I sent in an entry. Uh, I, I didn't place, but I did get an honorable mention for it, in fact, uh, and I, I was really pleased with how the essay turned out. I, I wanted to explore Alma the Younger, because he seems to be the most prominent character in the Book of Mormon, besides Christ, of course. And um, he seems to have a very sophisticated character development in the text. He's a very complicated character and a very has a very rich internal life, especially for the Book of Mormon that it doesn't tend to focus too much on developing its characters. So I, I really love Alma the Younger, and the essay was really a, a testament to that. Hmm. And what was it? What was the name of the essay again? The essay was "The Inner Life of Alma the Younger: A Psychoanalytic Reading of the Book of Mormon."
0: Okay, so uh, that's cool. And uh, what just just before we get started, did you, uh, what kind of responses did you get from people about it?
1: Well, uh, when as I said, I got an honorable mention, which was right. surprising to me. It wasn't uh, it. It wasn't published in dialogue, unfortunately, but I was really pleased that it got some honorable mentions. When I published it later on Medium uh, on mm-hmm. my own, uh, I did seem to get some really positive feedback. It seems like there are people who are really hungry to not only explore the Book of Mormon in um, contexts, maybe other than theological contexts, but uh, people seem to respond really well to just a chance to. Um, I hate to say dig past the surface level of the of the text because not to imply that others are are remaining at a surface level here but there's a depth to character development that I think is is really important to explore and it seems to have, have uh touched a nerve for a lot of people in a good way.
0: Wow okay well let's get to it tell me let's let's tell me about your what you uh, what you uh, what you came across and what, what, what really some, maybe some insights that you were able to derive from the text that I think will be of interest to our audience.
1: Yeah. Um, so let me just, uh, I guess, set the stage for it real quick, because uh, a big part of psychoanalyzing people is understanding, or at least exploring them psychologically, is understanding their experiences, where they've been, that sort of thing. So uh, just like a brief, brief synopsis. So Alma the Younger, he's this very young man. He's the son of a a man named Alma the Elder, who was a convert to Jesus um, from a very violent, very corrupt political system. Alma the Elder goes on to become a missionary. He builds these Christian communities, and he has his son Alma the Younger. Alma the Younger goes on and becomes a kind of gleeful persecutor of this community. He and uh, the the sons of King Mosiah go around and they persecute the community that Alma the Elder has built up. Um, there's this episode though in the Book of Mormon where they, uh, they're suddenly visited, visited is maybe a gentle term. They're suddenly very, very much attacked <laughs> in a way by an angel from the Lord. Uh, the text says, you know, the angel of the Lord appeared unto them descending as it were in a cloud speaking as it were, were with a voice of thunder, which caused the earth to shake upon which they stood. So this is a very intense experience they have. Um, the angel tells Alma all about the abuses that Alma the Younger is inflicting against his, his own people, against his family, and uh, his people and his family's intimate and heartfelt pleas for him to change, essentially. Uh, the angel, you know, is, is sent to convince them of the power and authority of God. The angel says, you know, things like, can you, ye dispute the power of God? Doth not my voice shake the earth? Can you not also behold me before you? I am sent from God. So it's this very abrupt and very brusque interruption of Alma's life as, as this, um, we could, we could almost say kind of just just a very gleeful, I think we know the personality type, the person who takes a great deal of joy in pushing back against religious people, especially I I think people we perceive to be very dogmatic or maybe overly saccharine in their their religion. Um, The angel says to Alma, though, this really interesting line, They, they say, seek to destroy the church no more, that their prayers may be answered, and this, even if thou wilt of thyself be cast off. Um, and of course this ends with the, one of the more iconic moments of the book of Mormon, which is that Alma essentially slips into what we, I guess we could call it coma. He becomes very unresponsive and he's left in the care of his father and his community. And in that time, he's sort of reeling in, in this, this feeling of his own sins of his own evil, essentially this, this, this feeling of shame, guilt, self-hatred. Uh, and then afterward he awakens and he has this what seems like a formulaic sort of born again experience, he he comes back with some some phrases that we would probably expect from it. I've repented from my sin of my sins. I've been redeemed of the Lord. I'm born of the Spirit, um, and he tells people become new creatures. All mankind, men, women, na- all nations, kindreds, tongues, people must be born again, born of God, changed from that carnal and fallen state to a state of righteousness. Um, but the thing that we want to explore here is. I think, specifically, what happens to Alma between when the angel essentially visits him and he becomes unresponsive, and then when he wakes up with his, uh, after his uh, apparent born-again experience. So to, uh, to begin, uh, I think we need to kind of explore Alma's unconscious self-hatred. This is, uh, this is something that I think that doesn't get discussed a whole lot, but there's this, uh, when Alma is an old man or at least you know older uh he's explaining this experience to one of his sons and the angel basically tells him stop trying to destroy the church of god even if it means destroying yourself the way that alma recounts this though i think is a lot more interesting he says he he has the angel say if thou wilt of thyself be destroyed seek no more to destroy the church of god Um, In more modern English, we might render that phrase as something like, if you want to destroy yourself, don't take them with you. And this seems like a really interesting phrase because Alma the Younger does not appear to be someone who wants to destroy himself. Like him and the sons of Messiah seem pretty happy doing what they're doing. Um, Something about this encounter with the angel sort of surfaces within Alma these feelings of guilt and shame and self-hatred, but they come from within. They aren't things that are like imposed upon him necessarily by an outside force. There's this um, quote from Harold Bloom, one of my favorites in his Mm. book, Jesus and Yahweh, The Name's Divine, where he says, I hardly think we as yet have absorbed the discomfort that only what is demonic in us can accurately perceive the identity of Christ Jesus, which I think is a really... Interesting idea that the encounter with Jesus has this way of surfacing in us some of the darker aspects of ourselves, or at least the things that we wish weren't there. Mm-hmm. So, as I said, though this is this is really out of out of uh, left field for Alma, at least because there's no real apparent sign that he hates himself or that he wants to be destroyed, um, and yet this angel tells him essentially. If you're trying to destroy yourself, stop trying to destroy the others around you along the way. So where does this desire for self-destruction come from is essentially the natural question. Hmm. Um, In in psychology and psychotherapy, we have this concept called the unconscious. Um, We essentially break the human subject into two, two sides, the conscious surface level self. That's what we typically identify as ourself. And then there's the unconscious self, the unconscious mind. So... The the this is a little abstract in some ways, but the the conscious self is essentially it's where you you feel your sense of agency and willpower it's where you feel your immediate sense of awareness, so us having this conversation right now that's us being conscious if I wave my hands like this that's a conscious decision. Um, But there's a whole unconscious mind underneath me as a conscious person, so an example of this in psychoanalysis and psychotherapy that's uh, often seen is uh, dream analysis. So, there's this uh, medical doctor and psychoanalyst named James Grotstein, and he talks about how when he was in, in, I believe, residency, he he had this dream that, uh, regardless of the content of the dream itself, he woke up with this very palpable feeling that he himself had not created the dream, that he had simply witnessed it. But the dream had occurred, obviously, within his own brain, within his own mind. So, obviously, there was this sense in which he did indeed create this dream even if he as a conscious self felt as if he was simply witnessing it, that he had not constructed it in any way. So um, he actually makes reference to ancient Assyrian views of dreams. Uh, The ancient Assyrians, according to Grotstein at least, seem to see dreams as like conversations between gods, and they weren't meant for humans, and so humans weren't really meant to disclose their dreams to other people because they had no real business doing so. He points this out, though, as a way of sort of illustrating how foreign dreams can seem to us, and it's a good example of how foreign the unconscious mind can be to us. What's interesting, though, is that the unconscious isn't just something outside of our awareness, it's actually something that forms and fundamentally shapes how we as conscious beings experience our lives. So there was a psychoanalyst named Wilfred Bion, B-I-O-N, he was very famous. Uh, He had this concept called the alpha function. And it basically was something like this, that the world around you is filled with what he called beta elements, which are basically just things that you don't perceive yet. So it could be objects, it could be people, it could be experiences that you go into, and the alpha function, this part of you, that's meant to take in those beta elements, it's meant to process them into what BEYOND called alpha elements. So the alpha function takes beta elements and turns them into alpha elements, and that sounds really abstract, but there's a... I, I could give you maybe a couple examples of like real-world examples. So when uh, when we discussed my, my mission experiences, one of the things I mentioned was that after my mission, right after my mission, when I was very fresh off of a number of uh, traumatic experiences, when I encountered elders, specifically, uh, missionaries with black tags and everything, I suddenly had what felt like very involuntary panic attacks. So for me on my mission, and trauma is actually a really good example of uh, how the alpha function can go awry, on my mission, the... Let's say the beta elements that were the experiences that I had, and the people I was with, and the, uh, the 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 situations that I was in. My alpha function, in in to use this terminology, could not fully process them. They were traumatic to a point that I was not equipped to fully process them in a way that would leave them settled and and fine within my own psyche, and so they created these alpha elements, which were expressed in things like a panic attack, essentially, when I when I would see missionaries. And as I began to heal from that sort of post-traumatic stress disorder, my, my quote-unquote alpha function became more capable of processing those beta elements, those beta elements being like missionaries. So there was another episode later when I ran into missionaries on the street, and I didn't feel any panic. I felt complete peace. My alpha function could process all of that into healthy uh, alpha elements. So I uh, the, the, the alpha function essentially, and, and the unconscious mind, let's just call it the unconscious mind, shapes how we experience the world in a, in, in a very similar way to how like an old school film projector shapes the light from a light bulb into a movie, on the sil- a movie projection on the silver screen. So it's like the, the unconscious mind is like a film strip. So you have the light bulb that has just nothing but light and the film strip filters that light And then it projects that filtered version of the light onto the silver screen. So the film strip is our unconscious mind. The light is what Beyond called beta elements or just the the external world around us. And the projection onto the silver screen is the things that we experience as conscious human beings. So So again, to go back to my example, the light of the film projector would be comparable to me encountering missionaries. Nothing about whom is like, objectively panic inducing and then the film strip my own unconscious mind would be my mind after going through a number of traumatic experiences and the panic that i felt would be analogous to the projection onto the silver screen does that make sense yeah yeah this is really fascinating stuff dude Cool, cool. So this that's just a quick primer, because uh, now Mm -hmm. we can really explore Alma the Younger himself. So we want to explore uh, the question of how Alma the Younger's own unconscious mind shapes his own conscious experiences. And I think one of the best indicators of how this works is um, Alma, when he's in his unresponsive state, when he's sort of reeling from his encounter with the angel, he has this really interesting sort of uh, dance with his own memory. So um, in, in, in psychology, one thing that we find rather consistently is that memory is not just our way of objectively accessing past experiences or past events. It's very deeply tied to emotional states, to mental states, as well as to our sense of self, to the way that we understand ourselves in the present. So a hypothetical we could think of is, um, uh, uh, say, a man and a woman are married, and then they go through a very, very bitter divorce. Um, and the man after the bitter divorce, he says, I never loved her in the first place. Um, but on, in this hypothetical, at least, that's objectively not true. At one point, he was actually very taken with the woman because he asked her to marry him. They had a, at least a, a fairly good honeymoon period before the, the marriage unfortunately turned sour and ended and in, in a bitter divorce. There's this sense, though, in which the man after the divorce saying, I never loved her in the first place, can't remember those positive memories. He only really remembers the bitter memories, the slights, the annoyances, the irritations, the conflict. So there's this sense in which the man's present understanding of himself and the situation that he's in shapes the selection of memories that he can access in his mind. And so, I mean, that's one of the roles of therapy, for instance, is to help us to access uh, what we're leaving out, essentially, um, in this case, memories that we're leaving out. So. This is, this is actually a really good indication of how Alma's own unconscious mind is affecting him. So he, he, Alma's selection of memories in his unresponsive state are expressed as things like all my sins and iniquities remembered, harrowed up by the very memory of, of all the things that he's done. He, uh, he has this tremendous weight of guilt and shame that expresses itself in numerous memories of him doing what he deems to be terrible things in the past. Um, and he even tells us a little bit of how he understands himself at the time of his unresponsive state. When he's going through this selection of memories, he says things like, "The very thought of coming into the presence of my God did rack my soul with inexpressible horror." And he wishes that he could be banished and become extinct, both soul and body, to prevent him from having to pr- present himself to anyone else, let alone to God. So there's this this intense sense of self hatred here, it, to, to the point of um, wishing for self-destruction, essentially. Extinction, both soul and body, as he puts it. So it's, it's a very intense feeling here. So we can sort of see how his selection of memories and his feelings about himself go hand in hand. Now this is the really, really fascinating bit though, because this isn't just a um, a deeply negative experience that Alma is having. He, he has, again, what I referred to earlier as essentially a born again experience. But what facilitates that born-again experience, his transition from this deep sense of negative affect to essentially what he refers to as redemption, is uh, remembering a memory that he hadn't accounted for, a memory that doesn't fit into his his current understanding of himself as worthy of destruction, extinction, of exile from God and from other people. He... uh, He said, he says, at least in the text, I remembered to have heard my father prophesy unto the people concerning the coming of one Jesus Christ. So Alma, just a little context, he lives prior to the, the lifetime of the historical Jesus. And in the book of Mormon, the Nephites, Alma's people, they anticipate Jesus coming. They look forward to it. Their, their prophets and religious leaders speak about it frequently. And um, Alma, the elder Alma the Younger's father was one of those prophetic figures who would often speak about Jesus. And he has this memory that comes back of his father preaching about that same Jesus. And it has this interesting effect because it disrupts uh, Alma's sense of self hatred. There's this cascading effect. For some reason, this memory, this one memory of him just of his father uh, preaching a sermon about Christ. Uh, essentially disrupts Alma's selective memory and overwhelms it with what Alma calls marvelous light, which is an interesting term because I think a lot of times people conceptualize encounters with Jesus as a kind of cleansing, a kind of ridding of something internal to yourself from yourself. But Alma chooses to call it a marvelous light, which is, as you might imagine, it's something that reveals reveals things within yourself. It reveals what's in the shadows. It lights up dark corners and makes things that were hidden apparent. It doesn't really get rid of anything. It makes everything apparent. And Alma says that the result of this is that my soul was filled with joy as exceeding as was my pain. So the big question is how remembering one sermon, ostensibly just one sermon about Jesus, so thoroughly disrupts not only Alma's current understanding of himself, which is a very negative sense of self, um, but also his very selective memory, namely just these all all these moments in which he feels like he's he's messed up. Um, And I think that the way we could summarize that essentially is that Christ for Alma functions as something like a healing gaze, or we might even say a healing consciousness. So Christ introduces a light into Alma. And by a light, I don't mean anything like metaphysical. I think it's, it's actually quite straightforward. It's a clarity. It's, uh, it's a revelatory sort of experience. So if Alma is lost in selective memory, introducing light means filling out Alma, making him a more robust person rather than a person who's simply stripped of his sins. So in this case, uh, he remembers a memory he had left out. So it's it's interesting because the Book of Mormon has this uh, somewhat ironic phrasing that when it refers to redemption, sometimes it calls it something along the lines of having one's garments washed white in the blood of the lamb. And that's really interesting because as I said, cleansing is is not what I see personally in the text here, as in removing something from Alma. But I don't think the Book of Mormon really thinks of cleansing in that way either. I think it thinks of cleansing in this very ironic image. I mean, when was the last time you washed something white by putting blood in it? Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. There's this paradoxical statement that you're removing stains by further staining this cloth with something of Jesus. Jesus is, Jesus is blood or Jesus is very essence. There's something about Jesus, this essential feature of Jesus that cleans you and suffuses you and heals you. And I think, as I said, I think that that's what Alma is experiencing here. I, I, I realize I've said this a couple of times, but I think this is the point I really want to bear in on here, which is that Alma is not cleansed he is seen by Jesus, mm. by a being oh. who loves not only in an absolute and unconditional way, but in an informed way. So in the Book of Mormon, and I forgive me, I'm not super familiar with uh, other, uh, other movements that descend from Joseph Smith and claim the Book of Mormon. I'm most familiar with the Latter-day Saints. But in the Latter-day Saint tradition, um, whether we tend to focus on Gethsemane or uh, the cross itself, or maybe the total way of suffering itself, there's this sense in which Christ, in that time, experiences not only all of human sin, as essentially, as its victim, but all of human suffering itself, including death. So Jesus essentially lives all of our lives and all of our deaths in this very intimate way. Jesus is essentially, in the Book of Mormon, Um, the one who knows from experience every sin each and every one of us has has perpetrated and every pain that not only that we have experienced, but that we have inflicted upon other people. All of the essentially, as I put it here, all of our truths that we wish weren't true and spend much time and energy trying to pretend aren't true or aren't there at all. Jesus, essentially, in Alma's mind, is the one person in the entire universe who would have every right and every reason to reject him, and yet still loves Alma nonetheless. So that's that's essentially what I mean when I refer to Christ as a healing consciousness. Christ is essentially this conscious being, this being who is... conscious of every last thing about you, every good thing, every bad thing, everything in between, everything outside that dichotomy. He's the one who would, he's this perfectly innocent, perfectly righteous person who, if he rejected you, would be completely justified. And yet, instead of rejecting you, he says, I love you entirely. Not despite, not because you might become something else, but just as you are, and that's, that seems to be the kind of encounter with Christ that Alma has, but the, and this is not only where we get into, that's obviously a little theological here, but this is also where we touch on the the psychological aspect of this, I think, because the Book of Mormon has this running theme of taking upon oneself the name of Christ, and Alma, in fact, after his conversion experience, he says to a crowd of people, uh, I say to you, can you look up at the uh, at the last day with a pure heart and clean hands? I say to you, can you look up having the image of God engraven upon your countenances? And in uh, Alma chapter seven, he's, he's preaching to a city of people. And this is a really interesting thing that I've never really heard anyone mention in Book of Mormon commentary. Alma talks about Mary being overshadowed by the Holy Spirit and conceiving Jesus. So fairly typical. But then right after that, he says that followers of Jesus are also overshadowed by that same Holy Spirit, Mm -hmm. with this implication being that they conceive within themselves something messianic, something something Christ-like as well. Um, there's this quote from Jack Miles. He's a former Jesuit and and an award-winning author. He wrote this book, uh, among others, called God, a Biography, and in it he has this quote about religion that I really love. He says this, philosophers of religion have sometimes claimed that all gods are projections of the human personality, and so it may be. But if so, we must at least recognize the empirical fact that many human beings rather than project their own personalities upon God's wholly of their own creation, have chosen to introject, take into themselves the religious projections of other human personalities. So I I think Miles here captures what I think Alma is after here, which is that Christ is not only a person you encounter, but it's a quality that you internalize within yourself. I think uh, essentially what he's saying is that Jesus's followers are supposed to, uh, to use Miles's term, introject Christ himself into themselves. And by that, I mean to sort of internalize Jesus's capacity to look at a being in total warts and all, and still not only accept them, but embrace them. Like I said, not despite anything and not because they might get better in the future, but just as they are. The Book of Mormon has a term for this. It says it, Moroni refers to this as the pure love of Christ. Pure, I think, in this sense, as there's no, there are no conditions, there are no requirements, there are no uh, terms to meet. And there's obviously no terms to fail to meet. It's simply pure love, which I think we could probably compare to Paul's concept of charis or grace, or even agape, this this, uh, sense of God's own unconditional love for the people, uh, for God's children. So there's this capacity uh, that Alma wants his 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 listeners to develop because he doesn't want them to just be people in relationship with Christ though that is obviously a pivotal thing for Alma but in that relationship to develop within themselves the capacity to not only grant themselves the same grace that Christ grants them but that they can grant to others and to life around them in general that same kind of grace to develop a sort of we could even say just sort of psychological skill uh an
0: openness Oh, Nathan, I want to really uh, appreciate this uh, thought-provoking uh, idea that you had. And uh, we're going to leave in the show notes a link to that article that you wrote. Um, I just have a few things I want to um, talk about. First of all, I, I like to tell Christians, this, you know, the, the Book of Mormon is very Christ-centric. And uh, I think that it's worth you contemplating some of the stories. The story of Alma the Younger has some parallels to uh, Paul. Uh, you know, in his Damascus Road experience, it's kind of a, maybe a more long drawn out uh, story, but it's a a parallel to Paul, which is fascinating stuff. Um, I just thought, you know, it's been a little over a year now since you and I've been conversating. And then I had you on the program when we did the PTSD and and the mission field. And I just want to know, um, how is Nathan Smith doing over the past year? how, How you been doing?
1: I think, uh, I think I've been doing pretty great, man. Thank you for asking. It, it's been um, the past 12 months have been very busy. I transferred from my community college to a full-on university where I'm trying to complete my undergraduate coursework. And I have an actual plan and an actual way of getting into grad school. And, and my, my ultimate goal is to go become a psychotherapist. Uh, I ended up moving into higher cities. Uh, I'm, I'm living elsewhere right now. And, uh, you know, I I just, I feel good. I feel a little more fulfilled. I feel a little more, uh, I guess the word would be unfolded in a way. I think I felt very constricted when we first talked. Just personally, I felt, I think, like I was very dormant. And now I feel like I'm, I'm sort of waking up and unfolding. That's awesome,
0: dude. And you are like my favorite post-Mormon Buddhist in the whole wide world.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much, man. You're my favorite evangelical in the whole wide world. (laughs) So I wanted to say a few things, folks.
0: Uh, Nathan, we're going to sometime this summer, and it just dawned on me today, I guess, is the first day of summer. Later this summer, Nathan is going to be releasing, uh, we're going to be, I'm going to help launch Nathan's podcast. It's still we're still developing it. Um, we're still tossing around ideas, even just the name of the show at this point. Uh, but look for that. And so when when we have it, we're gonna we're gonna launch it on my channel, a dual launch on his channel and my channel. And I want to I want let's get Nathan a couple hundred subscribers right off the bat to get started. Because I'll tell you folks, get a hundred subscribers on YouTube ain't as easy as it thinks. It took me a few months to get to a hundred. <laughs> um, and so I also wanted to point out that next month you are going to be giving a presentation to the Book of Mormon Perspectives Forum, which meets every single Monday night rain or shine, even on holidays. And it usually brings about 40 to 50 people. Uh, It's a great group. It has all the different groups within the restoration are participating in it. So you name the group, they've probably given a presentation. And just last night, Nathan and I were sitting in and by golly, Richard Bushman was also sitting in that, listening to the conversation. So this Monday night perspectives group has become very influential, it's small, but it's become the who's who of some of the top thinkers and idea uh, makers at uh, Jonathan Neville's given presentations, uh, Rob Meldrum even, but we also have uh, people from uh, Robin Jensen from the Joseph Smith Papers Project uh, made a presentation. So I just want to encourage you all to check out the Book of Mormon Perspectus um, form, which if you're friends of me on Facebook, I usually leave a link for that when a friend is on there. Nathan, what I'd like for you to do is, you, I noticed you left the link uh, to, to, to mentioning it. Uh, why don't you today, why don't you put in my private group? So Mormon B- Book Review's private group, post that announcement that you're going to be talking. And uh, let's see, I'm just going to make sure I got everything covered here. Yeah. So Nathan Smith, thanks for doing a real solid. I love you, man. Um, The conversations with you have been great. During last summer, I spent most of my time in rural Florida, didn't have any friends. And just about every Saturday night, Nathan Smith and I would get together and just talk. And uh, after a while, we're like, man, let's, let's tape one of these conversations. And that's what led to that awesome episode. Also, folks, Casey Kern, did do a presentation about uh, blood atonement in the Book of Mormon. And he talks about some of the same things that you had mentioned to that. So I just want to encourage people to watch that. So I'm blabbering. Thank you so much, folks, for doing the Tuesday Tangents. Nathan Smith, thanks for coming back onto the program. Absolutely, man. Much love to you. Thank you so much for always having me on like this. And uh, so, folks, just to remind you to don't forget to like and subscribe and hit the notification button for when a new uh, episode comes out. The podcast format is up and running again. We just released a new podcast episode yesterday, so we'll get caught up in the next week or two. So those of you who listen to us exclusively in the podcast, hopefully you'll be able to listen to this episode soon as well. Um, Don't forget, you can support us on Patreon and PayPal. Thank you for those who are supporting us. Hey, everybody, I guess it's the first day of summer. You have yourself a great summer and watch for my new channel, Stephen Pinecker, to be launched on YouTube tomorrow and you all have yourself a great day.